Welcome to What Can You Tell Me About Software? My name is Vasanth Thirvedi, and I am a graduate student at Santa Clara University, where I study data science, technology, and software. And my name is Faraz Abadi, and I spent six years as the head of software at a tech startup. Faraz, it seems like the latest craze is Bitcoin. I mean, it's been the craze, but more recently, because of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, we've seen crazy market utility. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Well, the thought is this cost this crossed a trillion dollars in valuation. I mean, who could have in their wildest dreams expected that to happen? I think that's super fascinating. I think I, I keep seeing these articles about Bitcoin just, just reached the trillion dollar market cap. It's weird that we never speak about market caps in relation to other currencies. You never hear, you know, the dollar is is trading at I don't know how many how many dollars in circulation, but you never right. hear like a hundred trillion dollars. I just reached a hundred trillion dollar market cap. So I think this is very singular and unique for Bitcoin. I, I don't know what the consequences are for for treating it like that, but I, I really don't see it as a currency because of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of somewhere in between because if you look at say gold, gold doesn't really have a fiat behind it, but the dollar has a fiat because you have faith in the government, whereas cryptocurrency took over as an asset that doesn't physically exist because people had fiat, had faith in no centralized ledger, no central government controls of it. Nobody actually controls it. It's, it's completely decentralized. So enough people believe in that vision that this thing was able to cross a trillion dollars in total, in total market cap, even though none of the people I know who own cryptocurrency actually use it to buy stuff. Sure. They just use it to hold asset value, which sure. is, I think, very interesting. So the question is, like, is the currency part of cryptocurrency misleading? I think the real question is, are you buying Bitcoin? <laughs> I'm buying Ether. Well, on that note, I'd like to introduce today's guest, um, Harshin Kantapur, who is a product manager at a fintech startup located in North Carolina. Harshin's really interesting because she started her career as a software engineer before transitioning into the product management role. This company that she started at, right out of college. It was just a 10-person tiny startup, you know, well, not necessarily working in their garage, but they, they did have a nice office office suite. They just finished raising their Series A. I'm excited to talk to Harshi. Let's get to it. Arshin, thanks for joining me. I'm super excited to get into this. I always like to start these episodes by asking how you got into software. You know, when did you first start thinking about it? Maybe it was in school, maybe it was earlier. What got you into software? Got it. I think let me start first before like what got me into engineering because I did do computer engineering for my undergrad. So when I was two years old, my dad got me like a rocking horse. And the first thing usually kids do is like go play with it. What I did was take it apart completely. It was so taken apart that it could never get fixed back together. <laughs> so I think uh, that was the first time my dad was like, looks like she's going to be an engineer, but let's see. But I think uh, that's that was one of the first instincts. Like I love taking things apart in general, which was why I actually moved into engineering as well. And my first introduction to technology, again, has to be through my dad. My dad was super passionate about the new technologies new gadgets, everything. Like, even if we were like girls, like it's me and my sister, he was always passionate. Like, okay, this is a new tech gadget coming out. Let's explore this. And then I think 
more into deeper softwares. I got into them in my undergrad, honestly, when I actually chose to do computer engineering, because again, I, I, I knew I wanted to do something with technology, but I, I wasn't exactly sure what. But undergrad was a way of exploring that I actually wanted to do computer science and computer engineering. Gotcha. Where did you go to school? I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay, that's super interesting. So that's the Midwest. What's the, what, how would you describe sort of the, like tech culture at that school? Was it, was there a culture? Did you guys have hackathons? Was there like a lot of clubs? How, how would you describe that? Yeah, it, it's a pretty massive school. Uh, all the, re- the reputation for UW is it's a party school just because it's in a cold weather, but it, it actually is a super high tech. We had multiple hackathons, multiple tech jobs within the university itself. I was personally working at the Do It tech store there as well. And and again, like the professors are so engaging in the tech world there. The, the biggest healthcare company, Epic, is actually in Madison too. So the tech culture in Madison Madison is supremely big from that perspective. And I think joining UW Madison and meeting people from, again, all across the board within different industries within the tech industry too, was literally eye-opening. Did you end up getting a job right after you graduated? So I think I got a job within three months of graduation. So I graduated in May and I started in August. So I actually had interviewed for Red Hat in October before graduation. But by March, they said their budget had fallen through, which was why like, I was like, okay, cool, let's find another job. But the main general manager of that Red Hat company had reached out to me saying, well, another neighbor of his is looking for a similar position. And would you like to interview for a startup company in Raleigh, North Carolina? And I was like, sure, let's do that. And that's how I got my current job. So through networking. <laughs> Super cool. It's like a typical yeah. story when um, everybody's like, you know, you, you interview, you go through all these rounds of interview and then, and then they come up with some reason like, oh, the budget fell through. Once you get on the actual job, you realize nobody gives, nobody gives a shit about budgets. Yeah, That's exactly. not, <laughs> we never talk about <laughs> budgets afterwards. Uh, Red Hat is an open source technology platform, correct? Right, correct. Okay, that's the extent to which I know about that. What, that, what, what how do they make money? So their main source of money is actually through customer service and through actually servicing. So <laughs> a lot of those times for those open source softwares and things like that, you have to get it set up in your own environment, things like that. And then if anything goes wrong, people are calling Red Hat, which is called consulting services that Red Hat then offers. So a lot of that uh, happens through consulting services, but also now they're venturing into cloud-based things and everything else, which a lot of the bigger Amazon and every every other company is venturing into. So that's how they're now expanding their their revenue modes, I would say. Got it. So the last profitable segment of IBM. Uh, yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So maybe. where do you, we'll yeah, where do you, where do you work now? So I work for a company called Global Data Consortium. It's a fintech growth company in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, and we deal in electronic identity verification through an API in 50 plus countries globally. So you would probably think, why do I need to get verified through an API or things like that? So if you think about signing on like a cryptocurrency platform these days, let's say, or even a financial institutions page, you, you, because of the European laws, because of the other laws in other countries, you have to get verified through the verification process. And that's not always just, here's my driver's license. So if you're signing on to a cryptocurrency platform, they're just letting you in 
there's just a couple of like rotating seconds in there where you're seeing the spinning wheel, but you don't know what's actually happening there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those times that the verification process is happening where they're checking, are you who you really say you are? And does like, does like Hersheen live at this address? Does Hersheen have the social security number? Does Hersheen have the state of birth? Like, is that a real person? or is she faking it? So even for larger transactions that happen on cryptocurrency platforms or things like that, a lot of those times verification needs to happen. So that's what we do globally, like through a single API. So this is super timely. I was, in fact, last night I signed up for uh, Coinbase Pro. I don't know if that's one of your customers right. you can talk about that, but I probably can't. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> but I've heard of the Coinbase. <laughs> I was I was signing up for that. They wanted pictures of my license, exactly what you're saying. And then right. you're right. It was like honestly like a two minute, less than two minute process where they verified yep. me. It was pretty impressive. So yep. you're saying that period after I submit my license. That that ver- that verification, whatever is occurring, is being right. done by some API. Maybe not your company, but yes. some similar yeah, type of API. some sort of, sort of API. Correct. Yes. And if that falls through, then it kicks off to manual verification. That where they might contact the customer for more details and things like that. But first, okay. they try and verify you through like the the single most layer, the digital layer. If the digital layer is able to verify you, perfect. Otherwise, it kicks off to manual verification teams where someone might actually take a look at your physical ID and be like, okay, this looks good, or this does not look good. So so somebody did see my ID. Somebody, like some human did get my ID in that two-minute time frame. No, it, if it got kicked off to manual verification, then only. Okay, so usually, yes. typically, I guess like usually, in most cases, yeah. it's just digital layer. It's just digital layer, yes. So, how does that work? How, how does that work? So you get all this information. You have uh, the barcode <laughs> on my license. You have my name. You have my face. Right. Yes. What, what are they comparing it to? So, so we, we're not completely into document verification personally in, in, in our business, but just telling you from like our perspective, like if you enter your name, address, date of birth, social security number on our back and we're hitting a lot of government registries, telecom registries, things like that locally in that country. So let's say you've signed up your phone number with AT&T or something. So we're, we're hitting those direct sources on our side to verify that kind of information. So we're, we're looking at things like if you see just the US, we might be looking at various different things like a DMV or maybe a postal service or maybe like a AT&T or things like that to see like, is your identity fully verified? Maybe if you think about credit scores, Experian has all your data or things other credit bureaus have your data. So similarly in all the different countries, you would have these kind of different directories uh, and registries. There's also consented marketing sources, commercial sources in each country as well Mm -hmm. that we're tapping into. So we don't really reveal our sources on what we actually hit and do the verification through, but that's just a small example of like how like some of those verifications do happen. Wow, that's that's super interesting. So basically, yeah. <laughs> all this all this data is either public or it can be bought and yeah, uh, or licensed or you yeah you pay per transaction, things like that. Yep. Okay, very cool. And so at this at at Global Data Consortium, what exactly is your role? What do you do there? So I'm currently the product manager. When I joined initially, I was a product manager for their Know Your Customer product, which I was just talking about. So you're verifying like actual consumers. And now over after scaling that product over the last two and a half years, I've transitioned over to launching a new product called Know Your Business. 
And that's actually aimed at verifying suppliers, vendors, and businesses. So when you think about different use cases, like even when the U.S. right now had the PPP program to distribute loans to different businesses, the small businesses, a lot of money actually went to fraudulent businesses as well. And even if you did like a basic check on them, they didn't even have a valid domain name or website. So things like that can now happen digitally too, where that digital API layer should be able to do a lot of that verification uh, all by itself over that business. And if not, we're also providing that kind of a data um, back to the customer as well. So I'm currently in the role of launching that product. We just had a GA launch for the product recently, and now we're just looking at expanding that. Super cool. And it sounds to me like you guys could theoretically you guys probably have like a hundred product ideas in the pipeline. So why, <laughs> why pick this product idea to work on? Why, why put all your resources or a lot of your resources into this particular idea? Into this particular idea. So I think again, closely aligns with our use case of know your customer as well, because eventually what we want to get um, into, which again, we're launching that also alongside KYB is connecting the person to a business as well. So what we're trying to do is let's say Hersheen works for GDC. So we're going to verify GDC. We're going to verify Hersheen. We're also going to verify this Hersheen related to GDC at some point through, again, through all our digital API. So that was one of our major drivers where a lot of those people, if you think about financial institutions, things like that, they want to know like, if a person is signing a check or things like that, are they a signatory of that company? Or are they just an employee of the company? Do they even have the authority to sign the check there? Things like that. So that's becoming more and more of a use case these days where a lot of this stuff actually happens through manual verification and takes three to four days. So some person is sitting behind the screen looking up 10 different business registries today, gathering all that information, again, looking at Google, things like Google also, they, they've admitted to that in research interviews and taking three, four days to compile all that data together to verify if that business is actually good and should we let them onto the platform. Right. So if we can cut that layer, bring it down to just maybe to the API, even if you're able to verify like 40% of the businesses, that still cuts down a lot of costs for a lot of those businesses too. So that was one of the major reasons why we wanted to cut down on the manual verification pieces there. And again, it closely aligns with our KYC use case where we can leverage some of our KYC sources for now our KYB sources too. Okay. So it sounds like it's like that was the most value add idea that you had in the the pipeline. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. And when, when, and so this is sort of this is something I've always been interested in. I think your your company's a little smaller. It's not right. like how how big is your company? I mean, it's it's literally just I would say like forty employees or so. That's it. Okay. And, uh, when, you and started, when I started, yeah. yeah, it was like less than ten employees. Uh, okay. This this is so. super interesting to me. So when you're in a when you're in a startup, this is sort of like this size. How do decisions be made? Is it typically management that decides this is the direction we're headed in, or is it more of a of a team decision, you know, do they ask input from, you know, say product managers or maybe their software engineers where like, are, are these meetings being held, you know, behind closed doors or are they, are they more open and public for input from people like you? So I think over the last two years, I would say they've been more like higher management has been doing a lot of that work because again, like even when you're in a startup, the small, you're playing like five different people's hats as well and roles. So uh, a lot of those product decisions, especially because 
this domain uh, it itself is fintech and you need to have a lot of domain knowledge to be able to make those kind of decisions ahead as well. So our co-founders have been experts in this field over the last 25 years. So that's why a lot of those decisions have been made from the higher management team. But now transitioning over, since we've expanded our product team, hired a director of product management, a CTO, things like that. Now it's become more of a collaborative process where all the product managers are giving their inputs and the director of product management is combining that roadmap together fully across all products. And then it's, it's then discussed with the stakeholders. So then the stakeholders inputs come through, which are the higher management, the CTO, the CEOs, co-founders, everyone else. So I would say if it's a small enough company, it's usually higher management, but, but once it starts expanding, it, it definitely is the product managers giving inputs into the roadmap. Got it. And I think earlier you mentioned that you wear five hats. So if, if your first hat, right. if your first hat is product management, what's the second, third? The uh, second, so third, fourth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I when I actually joined the company, I actually joined on the engineering team because I had graduated as a computer engineer. So I I joined to actually scale their DevOps processes. And so I was actually working on a little bit of engineering, a little bit of product. I was also doing sales engineering. So I was actually on customer calls explaining our product. I was also doing support because uh, believe it or not, that's actually the best way to learn about a product because when you can actually go deep and find what the issue was with your own product, that's actually the best way to learn, especially with more and more technical products. So I was doing a lot of support work, sales engineering work, product work, engineering work. And and yeah, I would say that's probably it. I, I don't think I sold that product. I was definitely not on any of the sales calls to sell the product. And then, yeah, like I was also talking to our DP partners and sources across multiple countries as well to, to do API integrations of their products onto our platform too. So, um, so it was, it was a lot of different roles all at the same time. <laughs> right. So I'm realizing we didn't fully discuss what an API is. I'm sort of familiar with it. And it gets more and more interesting because you just said that you're an API business that uses other APIs right. and then you're selling your API. If you had to describe API sort of really simply, you know, if I was right. like to say, I'm like, I'm five years old, let's say, right. how would you describe, but well, not five, let's say like not nine years old. How would, how would you describe APIs? So an API, that's a actually very good question on like, how do we describe an API to a small five-year-old kid? Um, <laughs> uh, so for an API, I would say it's, again, like if you think about it, it's a way to connect with people. Like if you're uh, thinking about even text messaging your mom right now, like you're, you're connected through software there. So just think of API as another piece of software that connects to separate entities. So you just want to send data across. So you want to send text to your mom. So you're sending that through an API format. That's mm. it. Your mom has that API integrated into her platform. So that's how she's able to receive that data. And if she wants to text you back, that's how she's texting you back. Bye. Again, not saying how this is how text works. This is how like an API works in terms of like transferring over the data. It's within seconds. So again, right. like, like you see your text reaches within seconds in an API format as well. Like that API, you're able to transfer over the data in a couple of seconds even. So API, I would say is like a job. It can do multiple different jobs. You can text, you can video call, you can do anything else with what an API can do. Again, every business will have their own API, what that, that business can do. So even if you think about uh, something like a Google Maps, for example, uh, they have an API. So if you want to show a case like 
oh, where is your restaurant on your website? You can integrate Google's API and that way show the Google map location on your own website. Right. So that's that's the way, at least I would think, we would be able to describe an API in a, in a simple term. <laughs> got it. Got it. I think earlier I, you were saying that uh, a lot of a lot of what you learned early on in the product management role is is doing the customer service aspect, like that customer service role where you're talking to customers day in day out. I've right. heard that a lot. I've, a lot of my friends who are in sort of product management roles, even like small startups, and not necessarily even product management, just right. talking to the customers every day. You get in the weeds. You understand what it is they're facing. And then they also sometimes like rip you a new one. So you end up getting right. a lot of pressure to like build something quickly. Right. Now, I wonder, are you, now that you're like a 40 person company, you have a built out product team, you probably have a built out customer service team. Do you still do that on a day-to-day basis? Do you still talk to customers? So with the new KYB product, I have been doing a lot of those demos and talking to customers about it to get their feedback. So that's been because I've been on the new product side, but like from a established product side, it's not been as much like the product is product team is not doing as much as we, we had done previously, but that's also because we are a B2B uh, company. It's not completely, we're not directly involved with the, our consumers either. So a lot of that feedback is flowing through our sales engineering teams. So they're technical enough to understand that feedback and customer feedback and transfer it over to product. But but we did have uh, in between sessions that we do uh, with some of our customers to gather like concrete feedback around product as well. So that makes it an easy way for us to gather uh, feedback there as well. And then even when we are trying to do the roadmap for like, let's say what different next countries should we target? We're actually talking with our main customers who are integrated on a platform and then gather their feedback and then make a holistic roadmap based on that too. So even the roadmap inputs do come from our customers as well. Got it. How often do you still code on the job? I know you said that you start off as a software engineer. I would say it's definitely become less. I have done it just to automate some processes within the product department itself. So just improve some of those processes. So I actually ended up coding it myself, but I've been more involved in like the SQL aspect uh, and the data analytics aspect of things now after transitioning more to product management. But yeah, it's it's been a while since I've actually done like full on Java coding or something like that. Got it. <laughs> Yeah. And and aside from I guess I guess coding less from day right. one, starting day one at Global Data Consortium, what yeah. else has changed? Do you think? I mean, even maybe as your first from your first day being a product manager, how have you? How has your sort of point of view on the role changed in the in the last two years? So. I started, again, I was a fresh newbie right out of college, did not even know what product management was until I actually even joined GDC. And then working through each of those different departments, trying to figure out what do I really like and what am I passionate about? The the role evolved from doing like five different things all at the same time, maybe a little well to maybe now transitioning into like an actual full product management role and trying to do that the best. So I feel like in general, over the course of two years, I've become more aware of like what exactly product management is, what exactly the fintech industry is, how do I actually increase my domain knowledge in terms of the fintech industry, as well as increase my knowledge within product management. Because again, when, you're, when you are in a startup company, you're trusted with responsibilities, but there's no real mentorship per se. So my director of product management was hired way later <laughs> than I got into the product team itself too. So for me to like guide 
with my own path and in a startup company where product management might not be a traditional product management role either. That's that's where I was like hindering a little bit. But then I think once we've had like an established team now for a full product and we've been given assigned actual products in ourselves, like I have now a product manager for KYC, we have a product manager for KYB product, it's become much more efficient from that perspective. So I'm now taking on more and more responsibilities of driving this KYB product and building the roadmap out, things like that. So that's actually made me much more confident within the product management field than the first day when I was a complete newbie and thinking like, what do I even want to do with my career? But I think having that period of four months where I could explore what I really wanted to do by looking at all those different pieces. I think that that was extremely helpful and actually a good way for people who don't know what they want to do after college even to explore and see what they really like. So joining a startup company really helps in that way. So on that note, what skills do you think are the most important at being a good um, product manager? product manager, I think the first and foremost would be communication skills. I And I can't stress more upon that. It's, it's very easy said than done, but I've seen uh, a lot of people fail just because they've not communicated properly. It's communicated expectations properly, communicated roadmaps properly, communicated if any issue is coming up with the projects not being able to deliver it properly, things like that. So I think the first foremost communication skills and then followed by, I would say, prioritization skills as well. Again, with the product manager, you're the central person driving the whole product. And 10 different people are going to come and say, well, this is more important or this is more important. You need to have the skills and the abilities to, first of all, say no, which is, again, very hard, especially if you're new in a company as well. And the second, to actually see what's actually important, depending on the research in the market, the product, the features that your product actually really needs versus what's nice to have. And then from a technical product point of view, I think it'll also be nice to have some sort of technical skills in terms of having SQL skills, which again, you can obviously ask the data analyst to get you the data and things like that, but it's always good that if you know SQL, there's no roadblock for you. You can go get the data yourself, make the decisions yourself. So that definitely really helps, uh, honestly. (laughs) So I think from that perspective, since all companies are now becoming more and more data-driven, I think anything to do with data analytics is becoming more and more important, even for product managers, honestly. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that I can either learn how to uh, code or (laughs) I can tell people how to do the job, do their job. No, that's super cool because I think, you know, like product managers that want to, or I should say prospective product managers, I think when you're a student, college student, whatever, you're trying to figure out what can I do tangibly outside of school to uh, boost, not even boost my resume, but boost my skills in a way that when I appear for an interview or I appear, and even in a conversation with somebody that's more experienced that I, like, I at least seem like I know what I'm talking about. And so it sounds like learning SQL, taking on these separate side gigs and just doing your work results, maybe results in a better future yeah. for people that want to be product yeah. manager. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I would say, yeah, like go deep into some of the product frameworks out there as well. Like I, I'm personally touching up on a lot of different things within the product field itself and just started reading a new book also to get more exposure into that, which is what, called what Cracking. Okay. Yeah, it's called Cracking the PM Career. It's by the same authors that wrote Cracking the PM Interview, which has been very famous. So they've just launched a new book this year in January. So just started reading that. And I think that's extremely helpful as
as well. It's a pretty hefty book. It's it's pretty thick, but but definitely recommend that Cracking the PM Career book. Okay. This is Cracking the PM Career by Gail McDowell and yes. Jackie Bavaro. Yes. Okay. Very yep. cool. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that rec. So yeah. I think taking a big picture look at the industry, I mm-hmm. think you, you are firmly in fintech, right? Right. How early do you think we are in fintech disru- disruption of financial services, the financial industry, like the financial infrastructure that this country's run on? I think it's interesting that APIs have been booming. Like the API business right. model has been booming ever since Stripe launched their, not the first API business, but it's like one of the most lucrative API business models in, in recent memory. And now right. you're seeing a lot of these startups that are built entirely on this model. Right. How early are we in this, you know, in this, in this sort of life cycle? I think we're still pretty early on comparatively. I think there's a lot more we could be doing with the fintech industry, especially because I think last last year I had attended the Finnovate conference in New York, where actually newer companies present their ideas. 60, 70 companies come present their ideas around fintech and what technology can do. And even seeing those and talking and and like seeing the big banks talk about how old their technologies are, even bigger banks like Wells Fargo or uh, Chase or things like that still have a lot of legacy infrastructure in place. So, and that to change that, it's not an overnight job either. So that's, that's where I think there's a lot more that needs to happen within the fintech industry to first start from the top above as well. But also at the same time, for us to be able to do a lot more things digitally now, because especially with COVID happening, we've all seen how no one really wants to go in person to all these things now, even for doing transactions or anything else, everything they want to happen digitally. So I think there's an opportunity here for us to be able to do a lot of this stuff digitally now and to make more advancements within the fintech industry. So I think we're still at a pretty early stage where things like machine learning can could actually enhance a lot of that fintech industry as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I think uh, the other really interesting thing about your role is that it's located in North Carolina. Your, your company is based out of North Carolina, which, you know, when, when you say you work at a fintech startup, people aren't going to think, oh, it's, it's a, you know, it's in the, even in the East Coast, but specifically in North Carolina. They think, in they North think Carolina. So yeah. what do you, if you had to speak a little bit about that, what, what's that hey. like? So I think it's actually been pretty great. So just to give you an overview, it's called the Research Triangle Park in this area. The RTP, it's called because of all the big research institutions we have, Duke University, UNC Chapel, UNC State, we're surrounded all three corners with them. And some of the top companies are have offices here too, including Cisco, IBM. We have huge offices here. So in terms of weather, it's actually pretty comparable to California which is also pretty great. So that's why a lot of companies are now moving to the RTP area, just because the cost of living is less, first of all. And then there's a lot of tech booming companies out here. And even in biotech, actually, it's, it's a big area for biotech here as well. And then just in general, I think it's a small enough place where everyone knows each other. So there's a huge network of founders, co-founders here as well, angel investors, my co-founder is actually one of the angel investors in this area as well. So I, I feel it's it's booming at a pretty rapid pace right now. And it's been very exciting to work in this area because the weather has been good. I've made a lot of different connections uh, in terms of the people I meet. There's always opportunity to, again, explore opportunities within different tech companies here because there's, again, Literally, and I don't know if uh, you've heard of this company called Pendo as well. It's, it was 
born out of Raleigh, North Carolina. It's actually boomed completely within the product world as well. So, sure. so they they're actually doing some frameworks for product as well. So again, they they started off as a very localized company and they got so much seed funding and they're actually pretty big now. So a lot of these Raleigh startup companies are now booming and we personally raised the seed investment round uh, oh, in nice. the middle Congrats. of a pandemic. Right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, we we raised it in the middle of a pandemic as well, which is kind of crazy to think about where companies are actually not investing. So I think it's a it's a pretty good area to be in. The cost of living is less, everything is good, and even if you wanted to pursue higher education, all three universities Duke, Chapel Hill and NC State are here as well. So sure, in terms sure. of resources too, you have a lot more in terms of what we offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's just, it only takes one unicorn to bring a place into perspective, <laughs> you know? So it might be, it, might yeah. be your com- it could very well be your company that, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think remote work is a net benefit or I guess really like a net negative for North Carolina? Uh, good one. I think for remote benefit i think it's been a net benefit for my company in general just because we've been able to hire people from across now across the state because we used to hire pretty locally before so it's been a benefit for us as a company in general and for me personally yeah it's been good because i don't have to travel to work and things like that but also kind of miss the opportunity to talk to coworkers outside of work because then you have your own lunch sessions. You could just go pick up a coffee with a coworker in, in downtown Raleigh. Things like that are the kinds of things I personally miss. But I think in terms of a business, if you're thinking remote work has actually been pretty good because you're saving out on a lot of different costs, even in terms of office space and other things too. So that's right. actually been a complete benefit from that perspective. Right. So it sounds like your startup has leaned in into the into the remote work trend. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've been working remote since I, I would say about a year now. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Harshin, it's been incredible. I've learned a lot. I think, I mean, there's just a lot about product management and I'm always happy to talk to product managers because each one brings a different perspective. I think you could talk okay. to one at a really big company and they'd say something completely different than one at a company your size. And I think there's lessons everywhere. So last question for you, uh, which we like to ask all our guests, what's mm-hmm. your favorite software that's ever been created? I would say actually, uh, and I'll take a name of the company too, it's, it's actually been Amazon for me personally. Just if you see both sides of Amazon, the first is the e-commerce side. Before the pandemic even, we were getting deliveries done within the span of two days. And imagine after, like during the pandemic, when literally people did not want to interact with each other, that piece of software came in so handy just because people who just could not go out could get things delivered to them within a couple of days. And then from a cloud perspective as well, if you think about it, before the cloud infrastructure came into existence, startup companies had to put in so much capital to actually set up their whole infrastructure. And now within a couple of seconds, I would say, they're able to set up instances globally within, let's say, London, Europe, wherever you want to go and actually set up your instance. And it just does not take as much money now to if you have an idea and you don't have that much capital to start up your idea with. So I think from both perspectives, from like a cloud perspective and an e-commerce software perspective, what they've done is actually revolutionized the whole world. Because if, if you think about it, each country is using it right now and and at a vast scale too. So to, to be able to do that so quickly as well has been revolutionized, at least for me. Uh, personally, sure, and sure. I, yeah, and I've used both. 
sides too, the e-commerce side and, and our, our company's infrastructure is also set up on AWS. Mm-hmm. And I think from a personal point of view, I would also say just the ability to even do video calls just because I stay personally uh, very far away from my family. So hearing the stories of my grandparents where they just literally used to write letters and not hear back within for weeks. And now being able to move to the US and I'm able to FaceTime my mom back in India and just see her and not feel lonely now it has been a massive change. So I think I personally wouldn't have been able to do study abroad, any of those things, if it wasn't for that piece of technology either. Sure. So I think personally, from that perspective too, I think that would definitely top the charts. <laughs> it, it, I got to have somebody. I mean, it's funny you say that. I actually have somebody from, I have Jeff coming in next week on the on the podcast. Yeah. yeah right. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll ask okay. him about this because it's it's sort of crazy. Like <laughs> people don't realize everything is powered by AWS. And, right. and so I'm hoping, I'm hoping he'll shed some light on that. And, and yeah, and really, I, I would love to hear that one. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, would, I would definitely be excited for that one. Yeah, I'll pick it to you. Um, <laughs> and, well, I, I, and, and I think like leaving off of that, like I'll recommend one other book. It's actually by Jeff Bezos, Invent mm-hmm. and Wonder. That's a thing a lot of people should read as well. Invent Wonder? Invent and Wonder, yeah. Oh, got Oh, Invent and Wonder. Okay, got it, got right. it, got it. Okay. Yeah, so that's by Jeff Bezos. So one of our co-founders actually recommended that. So it, it, it is actually pretty good. So huge Jeff Bezos fan from that perspective. I'll, I'll, <laughs> so, definitely, I'll definitely read yeah, that. Yeah, let him that know about that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll put you guys in touch. This is what actually does one of my goals with this podcast is to put all the guests in touch. So I'll add you to the Facebook group. Okay. All right. Thanks, Harshid. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. And I, I learned a lot and I'm sure the, the listeners have too. I will go ahead and in, include Harshin's LinkedIn information and other contact information. And if you want to get in touch with her, you can. All right. Thank you, Harshin. Thank you. It was lovely talking to you today.